Hi, I'm Tammy Hicks-Jackson. Welcome to my podcast. I am a Christian pastor in the United Methodist tradition, and this podcast covers a variety of topics. You may find anything from Bible study and devotions to yoga and meditation from a Christian perspective to my thoughts on Christian leadership and the church. Look for the descriptions and the tags for each episode to find what you're interested in. And thanks for taking this journey with me. Let's jump into this episode. We continue our journey through the book of Romans, beginning in chapter 10. Now, this section actually started in chapter 9 at verse 30. So let me repeat. It continues through verse 4. So let me repeat my comment for this section, which is that we see here a great irony in that the Gentiles who weren't seeking God's righteousness have found it in Jesus Christ. But many of the Jews who were seeking God's righteousness and seeking it diligently, but were doing so through the law, have rejected or missed the fact that Christ connects them to that very righteousness. Chapter 10, verse 9, we have to confess it with our mouth and believe it in our heart. There is a connection between action and conviction. Words alone without belief won't work, and belief alone without accompanying action won't work. There is no loophole. We either follow and commit to Christ or we do not. There's no tricking God's system. Come to Christ or don't, but you can't fool the system. People cannot come to this faith unless they know about it, and we bear some responsibility for sharing with them what we found. We have found a great blessing. When we find a blessing, we share it with others. There are references to an awful lot of Old Testament scripture here in this chapter, too much for me to really cover in the podcast. In chapter 11, we have another diatribe in verses 1 through 10. Has God rejected his people? Paul does not feel that God has at all. Um, it feels here like this would be the logical conclusion to what Paul has said up to this point. But then Paul backs up and says, no, God has not rejected God's people. Paul once again refers to there being a remnant of those who uh, constitute true Israel who do see the Messiah. In verses 11 through 24, we have another diatribe. The Jewish expectation was that Israel would be redeemed first and then believing Gentiles. Yet the Jewish unbelief of Jesus as the Messiah has affected a reversal of that. So now the Gentiles are coming in. They're being included. And then later, God will bring faith to Israel. We must remain grateful for God's history of the, with the people of Israel, rather than becoming arrogant about our relationship with God. This is not about arrogance. It's not about condemnation. It's about how is God at work and how do we cooperate with that? There is no call in the New Testament for anti-Semitism, although it has been used that way in the past. Verses 33 through 36 are a, a wonderful doxology. We move into chapter 12. Chapters 12 through 15 are going to explore what the righteousness of God looks like in daily life. Chapter 12 is a, a wonderful chapter for looking at what should we look like as followers of God. Paul's going to begin by talking about sacrifice. Jesus did away with the sacrificial system. So now it's not about an animal dying for us, but how we will choose to live because of Jesus. We become living sacrifices. 
evidence and gratitude for what Jesus has done. And this is our spiritual or reasonable worship. We praise God. We are in a lifestyle of worship. Everything we do either praises God or thumbs our nose at God. We are to not be conformed to the world, but transformed. We are in the world, but not of the world. We can hear this said again in Matthew 17, 1 through 8, and 1 Corinthians 3, 18. We should be shunning both inward and outward sin. It talks here about what the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. For many people, there is the idea that God has this perfect will for us. What was God's original plan for our life? Then we know that we don't always do what God wants us to do, and God is forever bringing good from that. He's constantly um, adjusting and nudging us back toward the future and the life that He wants for us. So some things are that perfect will as God originally intended. Some of it is good, what comes out of that, and some of it is acceptable that God allows us to make choices and help create our lives. In verses 3 through 8, Humility and unity go together. Um, We need to be humble in order to live together with one another. There are many different gifts that have been given, but they all work together in the one body of Christ. The gifts given here are most often called the motivational gifts. We have prophecy that comes in proportion to faith. This would be preaching and teaching things that lead to the feeling of conviction of sin. Two is the second gift is ministry. This will be service meeting the practical needs. The third one is a teacher, the the truths of the doctrines that, that we hold. The fourth is an exhorter, someone who encourages, who invites others to the journey, who counsels, who mentors. A Barnabas in the book of Acts is a great exhorter. Exhorting is what John Wesley originally allowed people to do who were not licensed to preach. And this was his first use of women in the revival movement of Methodism was he allowed them to exhort, to encourage, but not to preach and work toward the conviction of sin. He later changed his feeling on that because he saw how the Holy Spirit was using the women. The fifth gift is a giver, and that comes through generosity. This is sharing, setting an example for us. The sixth one is leaders. Leaders should lead in diligent. This focus, leaders focus on the common goals. They keep us headed in the direction we're supposed to. They keep us on track. And then um, the seventh gift is compassion, and we exercise that cheerfully. This will be empathy, mercy, listening, advocating for people. In verses 9 through 21, we see the marks of a true Christian, and love is the key. This echoes 1 Corinthians 13. You might also take a look at Psalm 15. Not doing the least we have to, but doing the most we are able. There's tough stuff in this section. It is easy to say, but it is hard to practice consistently and well. This is a great passage to commit to memory or to return to often. We will not overcome evil using the same strategies that evil does. We will only overcome evil by doing as Christ did. The litmus test of Christianity is not the stance on a particular position 
or um, issue. It is not how we dress. The litmus test for Christianity is love. And the litmus test of love is its genuineness. Is it hypocritical? Is it self-serving? Or is it genuine love? If it's not loving, it's not Christian. Chapter 13, there's a relationship discussed here between the Christian and the government. We submit to God. We follow Christ. um, But being under the law of the Spirit does not release us from obedience to civil authority. Government has a role in restraining evil and in preventing chaos. We see this in Proverbs 8, 15, and 16, and Isaiah 45, 1 through 3, um, in Daniel 2, 21, John 19, 14, 1 Peter 2, 13, and 14. However, this does not mean that we obey civil authorities under all circumstances, There are times when we as Christians must engage in at least civil disobedience because our ultimate allegiance belongs only to God. And if the civil authority contradicts what God has told us, then we are expected to to refuse to obey that order. That's what Daniel does. He's very obedient to the civil authorities until they tell him he's got to worship another god. Um, and then the three Hebrew sons refuse to bow down, and Daniel refuses to stop praying. But in general speaking, we are to um, obey our civil authorities. The mention here of what belongs to God segues nicely into a little bit of talk about taxes. Uh, and taxes comes into our greater debt. We have a great debt to God because of what Jesus has done for us. We're told not to be indebted to others, that if we're indebted to others, they'll try to control our behavior and demand our loyalty. Recognize that our debt to love others comes because God has loved us, and that love debt is the one that we owe, and we pay it back by loving others as God loves us. And verses 8 through 10 are what that looked like. Verses 11 through 14 talk about this liminal time. Liminal time is an in-between time of being on the threshold. We're on the threshold. We're in between darkness and light. We need to go ahead and stop living as people of the dark. Go ahead and embrace living as people of the light, even though God's kingdom has not fully come and fully been realized. There's also a reference to taking off and putting on. Repentance is the taking off of old behaviors. But we are also putting on Christ. This is the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to live as Christ wants us to. Chapter 14, the faith here, the word faith in verse 1 means conviction. Some are not entirely convinced on these issues that now get discussed. They're experiencing guilt. They're hesitating to do some things because they're unsure. And we're told we shouldn't encourage people to do things that they don't feel entirely comfortable with. We need to allow them to come to a place of peace and full conviction about an issue Um, to become settled in their mind about whether it's right or wrong. I immediately think of some issues of things like uh, consuming alcohol, um, maybe smoking, using curse words, um, choosing some careers, um, engaging behaviors. Don't encourage people to do what they think are wrong. 
in verse 2, let's talk about Corinth for a minute. In the city of Corinth, a controversy arose over eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Paul tells us here he does so without any problem. He doesn't believe those other gods are real anyway. They're all false gods, so what difference does it make? However, Christians should not participate in the religious rituals in which the dedication occurred, but there's nothing wrong with buying meat in the marketplace or sitting down to a meal and consuming meat that has been dedicated to an entity. However, there are some Christians that that is part of their commitment to faith is they don't want to do that. They're not going to eat that meat. And Paul says, so let them do that. Like, don't argue about whether to eat the meat or don't eat the meat. If your conscience lets you, fine. If it doesn't, don't. Um, this would apply to us in that some can visit um, religious ceremonies of other faiths and feel okay. Others feel like they need to remove themselves or, or walk out from that. As we move into verse 5, we see that this also applies to holidays and particular days of the week. Some of those who had now become part of Christianity are still engaging in Sabbath keeping. Some who are converting may have wanted to keep Sabbath in very Jewish ways. Others can't do it. They're servants and their time is not their own. Others feel released from Sabbath keeping. This would also refer to like the Jewish festival days and to secular holidays, to days of fasting. Some are going to feel differently about certain things. In this day and time, some won't put up Christmas trees. Some think Easter is connected to pagan fertility rites. If if your conscience tells you not to do it, don't do it. But others are going to do it without having their conscience be pinched. So this would extend to a lot of other issues that we could apply in our day and time. It could even be extended to preferences over worship and music styles. We must not look down on those who have different opinions on issues. Um, We don't live for ourselves and our own superiority. We live for the Lord, judge ourselves and not others, but also be aware of the witness that we give to others, there's a there's a, a balancing act that happens here. Wesley defined a stumbling block as an act of moving others, even against their conscience, to do as we do. And we shouldn't do that. We should not force people to do what violates their conscience. Our love for God and for others transcends our own rights and our own claims our own freedoms, there's a balancing act of limiting our freedom to be responsible for another's well-being and be in relationship with them. Again, verse 23, the word faith is conscience or conviction here. And you're going to go ahead and get a bonus, and I'm going to put in chapters 15 and 16 here in this podcast rather than doing them separately with the next reading. As we move into chapter 15, when you have something worked out, You need to continue to be patient with those who aren't there yet, who haven't come to a settled feeling on an issue. This is why I am very patient with people. It's why I describe myself as a centrist within the Methodist denomination is I know that some people have not yet made the journey to where I am on particular issues. I need to be patient. I need to acknowledge that the Spirit of God is at work in them and among them. This section ends um, where it began in verse in chapter 14, verse 1, with a prayer that we might all figure out how to tolerate, how to love one another despite our differences. 
Verses 7 through 13 are Paul's concluding words, his restatement of what he said before. Each of the previous sections have ended with a prayer or a benediction. We've seen that in chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, and in chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. And so here, once again, we have um, a summary section that ends with a benediction or a prayer in verse 13. Paul returns to his introduction in chapter 1. He praises their character, their maturity of faith, and he reminds them that where he sounds bold, where his words might sound a little bold for someone who has never met them or met most of them and who didn't found this church, he knows he's only reminding them of the things they already know and do. He's not disciplining them. He's affirming their um, shared commitment to living as Christ wants them to. He feels that this is well within his apostolic commission, his calling to be an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not stepping outside of his authority. This is also um, his priestly service. This would be a reference back to Isaiah 66, verses 18 through 23, where there's a prophecy about the Gentiles being incorporated into Israel. And Paul is saying this is what is happening, and it is his calling to be part of seeing that happen. Paul affirms that he plans to visit them. He wants to launch a mission to Spain and do so under the sponsorship of the Roman church. He's not going to accomplish this, though. Wesley makes a comment about this. He says, such holy purposes, our desires to do these kinds of things, are sometimes thwarted. Nevertheless, they are precious in the sight of the Lord. It's okay for us to make plans that end up not working out or that God doesn't open the doors. If we're seeking to follow God, He'll end up leading us in the right ways. Verse 30 appears to have written been written before he makes his final journey to Jerusalem, which is where he is arrested, that's where he begins his journey to Rome. But he seems to imply that he's coming of his own free will and not coming as a prisoner. So that has not yet been revealed to him. He will ultimately come to Rome, but it will be differently than he envisions here. He asks for their prayers. Um, he both is and isn't rescued from these Judean unbelievers in Acts 21, verses 27 through 36. He's rescued from them by appealing to Caesar and ended up being arrested and transported on this journey to Rome. And in the closing chapter, verse chapter 16, this one resembles very much the closing of his other letters. He greets and mentions a lot of people, some of those we should take a little note of. We have Phoebe. Phoebe is a deacon a servant, a minister. We've already talked about the same word, which is translated deacon sometimes in relation to men, is often translated servant, but here is that word. Um, She is a servant, a deacon, a minister. She's likely the one who will carry this letter, who becomes the one who brings the letter to Rome. We mentioned Priscilla or Prissa and Aquila here. They left Rome under Claudius's edict, Acts 18, 2 and 3, but they have since returned. They are a missionary couple in ministry together. Andronicus and Junia are most likely a married couple. They have been in prison with him, we see. 
And he calls them my relatives, which could also be translated my compatriots. They're colleagues who are as close as family. And it says that they are prominent among the apostles. The word Junia, her name has been changed in some translations to Junius or Junius. Um, That was because they just could not believe that a woman would be referred to as an apostle. And then they have tried to translate it that she is well known to the apostles for her service to the Lord. But the words that are used here, the forms of the verbs and the words mean not just known to the apostles, but they are both our apostles and they are prominent ones. They are well known and respected among the apostles. So we have a a female apostle here in Romans. Verses 17 through 23 are his final admonition. Once again, he focuses on unity, avoid those who cause dissensions and offenses. Those people have their own agendas. They aren't being consistent with the purposes of God, and yet they are going to succeed in pulling some to their side. We're urged not to be among them. Um, Paul calls it... Calls it um, deceiving the hearts of the simple-minded. Verse 21, he uses this word relative, which could be compatriot again. Um, Tertius is an amenuesis or a secretary, the one who is actually penning the letter, probably at Paul's composition. We've talked earlier about his experience on the road to Damascus and the blinding light may have left him with a lingering eye problem. A couple of times in his letters, he says, see with what large letters I write this. It may have meant that because of an eye problem, he uh, used a secretary to write for him. And when he writes, it has to be quite large. Gaius is probably hosting Paul and a church in his home. Erastus would be a prominent citizen in the city, so we're being drawn to the fact that the way, as Christianity is still called at this point, crosses socioeconomic barriers. Verses 25 through 27, this letter ends at his, as it begins with presenting the gospel as a ministry, as a revelation of God, that its proclamation is going forth. There's the testimony of the prophetic writings. There's the obedience of the Gentiles to faith. All that God has promised is coming to pass. And he concludes with a soaring doxology at the end. Some manuscripts omit verses 25 through 27. Other manuscripts place them after chapter 14, verse 23. Others place them after chapter 15, verse 33. This may um, be a result of the versions being um, copied. Goodness, let me try that again. This verses 25 through 27 have been placed at other points in other copyings of this letter. It may be because... There were copies made to circulate to other congregations, and those sections were seen as applying specifically to the Roman congregation and not being um, appropriate for wider circulation, so they abbreviated it and edited it. We know that many of the letters were circulated, were used in the churches for teaching. So this is Paul's letter to the church at Rome as he introduces himself, lays out his theology, and hopes of coming to them in the future. Thank you.